So this afternoon we're going to have a look at Romans 4, and we're going to start reading at verse 18. So you might want to have a look that up and follow me when I read that out. Basically we're looking at faith this afternoon, and particularly we're looking at faith and having hope when things seem hopeless. I wonder how many of you have ever had hope for something that seems hopeless physically. When I was younger, I used to have a hope that Scotland would win the World Cup. <laughs> and I quickly realized that that was hopeless. These days, I just hope that they actually qualify for the finals, never mind actually win the thing. So we're going to be having a look at Romans 4, and it's looking back at Abraham's life and how he had hope in a time when it seemed hopeless. So Romans 4, verse 18. Against all hope... Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. So this afternoon we're going to have a look at a little bit at the context of this. I've realized I jumped into the middle of a chapter here. So we're going to have a look at the context, and then I want to spend some time really understanding what Abraham's situation was, why was it hopeless, and why could he still have this hope, and how he acted upon that. We'll do that first of all. And then I want to kind of personalize it afterwards and really kind of look at how we carry on having faith, particularly when we have disappointments, particularly when it seems to be that things don't happen as we expect them to. How do we carry on having that faith? So the context, first of all, we're looking here in Paul's letter to the Romans. And really, Paul, in this whole section, for a couple of chapters here, he's been talking about faith and what it actually is. So he's been talking about how through faith we're actually justified, so our righteousness, the fact that God looks upon us as righteous, that comes through our faith in Christ Jesus. He's explaining it's not something that comes by works, it's freely given by God's grace, and all it requires on our behalf is a faith. So the chapter before, in chapter 3, verses 22, he says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. If you're going to sum up the Christian faith in two or three verses, then that does it pretty nicely. It's a massive subject. I'm not going to fully talk about that today, obviously, but it's important to put this into context because that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. And that's why he brings up Abraham. He brings up Abraham as an example of someone who had faith, who had faith in God, who trusted in God. And as a result, God counted him as righteous. God looked upon Abraham as righteous, not because of any works that he did. That's what Paul's pointing out to the Jews here. The Jews obviously were a people who had a faith that was kind of almost built on the different works that they did. So they were circumcised when they were young. They had all the different sacrifices, the festivals, the, the Passover, etc., etc. They had the book, the law that they were trying to follow. They had so many different works that they were trying to do. 
But what Paul's saying to them here is, Abraham was not saved by his works. He was saved by his faith. He was actually saved before he was circumcised. That's what Paul points out to them. He was saved because he had faith. And that's why why God looked upon him as righteous. So that's the kind of context that we're looking at here. And that's why Paul starts to focus on Abraham. So what was it that Abraham was hoping for? What was his hopeless situation? It says in verse 18, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. To fully understand the situation, we have to go back to Genesis and, and really understand what it was that Abraham was facing. This verse 18 actually quotes something from Genesis 15. And if you read the whole section there, it says, And Abraham said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. He's talking to God at the time. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. At this point, Abraham is 86, and his wife Sarah is just 10 years younger than him, so she's 76. And God's just given him this promise that his descendants are going to be as many as the stars in the sky. Now, at this time, and all the way through her life, Sarah has been, it describes her that she's got a barren womb. That's how it describes it in the Bible. She's not been able to have children all through her life. And now God's saying to him, you're going to have these many descendants. Humanly speaking, this is a hopeless situation. There's no way it can come about. Even if she was able to have children when she was younger, then having children at 76 wasn't going to happen. And this wasn't actually the first time that God had made this promise to Abraham. He first made it when he was 75. So he first actually made the promise a few years before that. And Abraham was still holding on to it. God's still repeating the promise. But it didn't actually come about until much later on. It didn't come about until Abraham was 100. So from first getting the word at 75 that he was going to be a father, which seems ridiculous anyway, he had to then wait a further 25 years, quarter of a century, until he's 100, until he becomes a father. But he carried on believing. He didn't doubt. He didn't let doubt kind of cloud his his vision of what God could do. He believed in the bare word of God alone. He didn't need a sign. He didn't need kind of crashing symbols or whatever else. He just, he believed on what God said. And he acted upon it. And I think that's a really important thing. So when we look at, again, later on in the story in Genesis, there's a really significant bit because When he's 99 and God comes to him again and says, Abraham, you're going to be a father of many nations. He says to Abraham, as a sign of this, I want you to change your name. So Abraham's name up to that point had actually been Abraham. Abraham, sorry. So rather than Abraham, it was Abraham. And God said to him, I want you to change your name to Abraham. Now, Abraham means father of many nations. It seems ridiculous. There's this guy who's 99 years old. And God's saying to him, I want you to change your name to the father of many nations. And at this stage, he's got no children at all. You can almost see him walking down the street, an old man, 
And people kind of smirking and laughing at him. Here comes Abraham, the father of many nations, knowing he's childless. Yet, Abraham was prepared to do that. He believed God, he took God literally at his word, and he took this step of faith, changing his name, despite what other people may think. In verse 21 of of Romans 4, Paul tells us that Abraham's faith was such that he was fully persuaded. There was an assurance to his faith, and you can see that by the way that he acted. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. There's nothing kind of woolly about it. It's not something that blows about in the wind, but rather there's a a sureness about faith that God is bigger than our circumstances, that God is able to do what doesn't seem possible. What seems hopeless is not hopeless to God. There's an assurance there. It's something concrete and it causes us to act. If we went back to my kind of silly example about hoping Scotland would win the World Cup, if I really had faith in that, then I'd be buying my ticket to Brazil. But obviously I'm not. (laughs) There's no assurance there. There's no real kind of faith. Now I want to be clear. What I'm not saying this afternoon is that we can name and claim things. I'm not saying that Abraham was able to just change his name and then claim that it was going to come into being. What he was doing instead was acting on the word of God. So God had spoken something very clearly to him that something was going to happen and therefore he took the step of faith that God asked him to take. It's in response to God rather than kind of dictate to God what should happen. And also, when we look at it, faith isn't something that's, that's escapism either. So in verses 19 and 20, Paul says that Abraham faced the facts. So he faced the fact that he was 100 years old. He faced the fact that he hadn't had kids up to this point, that Sarah's womb was barren. But he looked above the facts. He looked above the natural facts to the fact that God is bigger than all our circumstances and his faith was strengthened as he glorified God. That's what it says. So as we fix our eyes upon God, as we worship him, as we glorify his name, as we wait upon his spirit, so our faith grows, our faith is strengthened. So that's the first step, having a look and trying to understand what it was that Abram had hoped for. And the next thing I want to have a look at, as I said at the start, was keeping our faith despite disappointments. So Abram and Sarah, they didn't have Isaac until Abram was 100 years old. They had to wait all that time, despite the fact that it was first promised that they would have Isaac when Abram was 75. Now, I imagine for for Abram and Sarah, it must have been really tough going through their life, going through the whole problem of not being able to conceive, not being able to have a child. They must have had to deal with that a number of different times during their life as they were younger and as they were growing up. And you think by the time they got to 75, they were almost resigned to the fact that they weren't going to have children. They'd almost dealt with the emotion, with the pain of it. And then God almost reignites that with this word. He rekindles some of the, almost the pain that they've been through, if you imagine. And he says, you're going to have a family. You're going to be the father of of many nations. And yet, for 25 years, still nothing happens. You must imagine that at times, 
That must have been really hard for them. There must have been times of disappointment in there, times of thinking, is this ever really going to happen? Can he dare to believe when God comes back and he's 99 years old that it can still possibly happen? You've been saying this for 24 years, God. Genesis 17, verse 17, that, that's the, the chapter and the verse where God actually talks to Abraham and tells him once again, he's 99 now, and God tells him once again, you're going to be a father. And Abraham falls face down. He laughs at himself and says, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? It's quite a natural reaction. Sarah, obviously, as we heard, as you read later, she laughed as well when she heard it. Is it really possible? And I think that's a, I love reading these old stories because you're reading about people who are held up as being great pillars of faith, and yet they had periods of doubt as well. You see the humanness of it, you see the reality of it, and you can relate to it. I almost hesitate to, to tell this story, but I think it kind of almost gets the point across, although it's a bit, a bit petty probably. I've had a, a slight problem with my eyes for, for, well, since I was a teenager. Basically, I get this kind of, um, it's almost like dandruff underneath the eyelashes. And it, it kind of, it blocks up the ducts a bit so they get quite dry and the, the stuff kind of goes in your eye and it gets dry and flaky and it also causes the eyelashes to fall out sometimes so they go in your eye which is a bit sore as well. But on and off it gets given more trouble and less trouble and I've been to doctors a few times about it and they'd always said it was conjunctivitis and given me drops and which did nothing because it wasn't conjunctivitis. Um, and eventually a doctor got it right and, and basically said, what you have to do is bathe your eyes in the morning and bathe your eyes in the evening, and that gets rid of all the stuff. It's called blepharitis, and you can basically control it through that. So that's all fine. But during the period where I didn't know what it was, and it was giving me quite a lot of grief, um, I went to a big meeting, and, and someone had this word of knowledge, and they described the situation perfectly. They They described the itchiness. They described... The eyelashes falling out, they, they got the whole thing, you know, the dryness, they got the whole thing absolutely spot on. So you can imagine I went forward filled with faith. Wow, this is amazing. God knows my situation. You can see it. He's surely going to heal me now. And then nothing happened. And I could feel God on me when I was prayed for, but the situation stayed exactly the same. And the eyes haven't been healed yet. And I'm sure you've all got stories that are similar to that. I'm sure my story is actually pretty minor compared to some of the bigger things that you've dealt with. But yet, sometimes these petty disappointments can build up. We start to think, well, there's no point in believing. Again, there's no point because God's not going to act. Philip Yancey puts it like this. I have found that petty disappointments tend to accumulate over time, undermining my faith with a lava flow of doubt. I start to wonder whether God cares about everyday details, about me. I'm tempted to pray less often, having concluded in advance that it won't matter. I know for me that describes my own faith at times very well. And I believe it's probably the case for a lot of Christians as well. We can get bogged down by the disappointments, by the things that haven't gone as we planned. And it can hurt our faith, basically. 
It's a very natural human reaction to hurt, or when we have hurts, when we have pain, that we start to recoil. Tom O'Dell recently had a, a top ten song in the charts, and it was all about how he was wanting to fall in love with someone, but he was afraid of doing it because he'd had a bad experience in the in the past. He'd had pain in the past. He says, and I want to cry, I want to fall in love, but all my tears have been used up on another love. It's such a common thing, I think, in this world. When we've been hurt, when things haven't worked out the way we planned, so we coil not to try again. And again, I don't know what your examples are. It may be promises that were unfulfilled, like Moses, like Abraham seemed to have here. It may be sicknesses that haven't been healed. It may be prayers that haven't been answered. It may just be the way, the direction that your life has gone in. Also, I think another way, another thing that we've been talking a lot about recently is a, is a fresh outpouring coming upon the church. And that fresh outpouring coming upon the church and not being constrained within the walls, but actually going out and, and impacting the nation. I first heard talk of revival and promise of revival when I was 13. So it's almost like a similar gap to Abraham had was put 25 years ago. I had prophetic declarations that there was an imminent revival in the UK coming and God would start at the very top and he'd work his way down through the UK. And I was very excited about this because I came from Orkney, which is right at the top. And it seems that since then, we've seen quite a few different moves of God. We've seen things like the the Toronto blessing happening. That would be the most famous one. But we've seen a number of different moves of God And they've touched the church and people have been filled up and people have been set free from things and people have had different giftings that they've not had before. And God's awakened a lot of different things through them. But by and large, it's been kept within the walls of the church and it's not moved out yet and we've not seen the great revival that has been promised and that has been prophesied. And again, I think sometimes it would be easy to be disappointed by that, to start thinking, well, is it really going to happen? Is this a, a hopeless situation? Can God really change a nation? If we look at the nation through kind of human eyes and start to see the state spiritually of our nation right now, then we can start to think, how can it possibly ever change? How are one or two people even going to come to know God? Never mind a whole nation. It's easy to start being cynical, to conclude in advance that nothing is going to happen. I want to stay at this stage Again, that having doubts in itself is not wrong. It's not sinful to have doubts. When we look at at Abraham, he had a doubt as well. Can God really give me a son at 100 years old? Will Sarah really bear a child at the age of 90? It's what we do with the doubts that count. So Abraham had these doubts. He saw the difficulties, but he then rose above them. He still had faith in God. It was at this stage, as I say, that he changed his name to Abraham, that he took that great step of faith just after he'd kind of laughed and said, is this really possible? It only becomes wrong, it only becomes sinful when it turns from just being a doubt to being cynicism, 
to being unbelief, to being inaction, to being apathy. That's when it becomes wrong, when it stops us actually doing what God has asked us to do. I think if we're being honest, then at some stage in our life, all of us are going to have doubts. Even if that's, you know, in some of the fundamentals of our faith, when you start thinking about things like the second coming of Jesus, when you start thinking about the, the magnitude of our, our salvation, of, of being delivered from, from sin, all these things are pretty massive, and it's time, sometimes we're all going to go through periods where we have some doubts. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Faith does not turn its back upon problems. It surmounts them. It looks them straight in the face and then rises above them. I think that's a really good description of faith. It recognizes that there are problems. It recognizes that we're going to have hearts, we're going to have disappointments at times. But then it chooses to rise above them, to carry on believing, to look afresh at God to realize that God is bigger than our situation. Again, when we look in the Bible, there's a really good example of this with Peter walking in the water. When Peter's focused on Jesus, he's able to take those steps in the water, something that's completely hopeless, something that man cannot do by himself. Yet he's able to do it as he focuses on Jesus. It's when he takes his eyes off of Jesus and starts looking at the water, starts looking at the waves, starts seeing the wind, that he begins to sink. Our focus at all times needs to be on Jesus. It needs to be on God and who God is and what he's able to do. Now for me, that means a lot of the time getting back to to reading about what he's done in the Bible. So reading about these stories like Abraham, that's exactly what Paul was doing here. He was reminding them of Abraham because here was a man of faith. It's about reading about the things that happened in the Acts of the Apostles, the great moves of God when he came by his Spirit and saved hundreds of people, thousands of people, on on just one day. But it's also, for me as well, it's, it's about reading about what he's done in our own country. So I love looking at things like the Hebridean Revival and reading about what God did in our own country just in the 1940s. It wasn't even that long ago. Or going further back and looking at Wigglesworth or Wesley, reading these stories, reading of the things that God has done. To me, that starts to then basically wash out the cynicism. I start to see exactly what God is capable of doing, what he's done in the past. I start to refocus on, on God. It, it stirs a new passion within me. It gets rid of the apathy. It raises my faith. I begin to believe, I begin to have hope again, despite the hopelessness of the situation. There's one other point here from from Abraham's life I think we can look at as well. About halfway through that 25-year period, Abraham, and particularly his wife Sarah, obviously got fed up waiting And they decided that they would work out God's plan by themselves. And the plan was that Abraham would have a family through Sarah's maidservant, basically. So Abraham slept with his maidservant, and they had Ishmael. They tried to work out the situation for themselves, but it turned out to be a disaster. It wasn't God's plan at all. 
And it's so easy when we are waiting for something to happen like that. It's so easy to start to, to try and manipulate the situation, to try and understand how it's going to work and to try and make it work by ourselves. But that never works. We need to wait for God. As people have come and spoken to us recently about this movement of God, they've, they've had some, some really useful things to say. So someone came along and said that it wasn't going to be like past movements. We're not going to be able to work this one out. We're going to be surprised at the way that God moves when he does move. Someone else came and said that it, we weren't going to be fighting or the battle wasn't going to be fought with the tools of this world, but rather it was going to be done God's way. And I think, again, I think as we wait for God to come and move, then we can't manipulate things and try and do them our own ways. We need to be walking in his will, just as Abraham walked in God's will at that time as well. It's not going to be like past movements. God's going to come in his own way, in his own perfect timing. Abraham, sorry, Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. We're almost back to the start here. Faith is believing in God. It's having a hope against all hope. This steadfastness, this assurance that leads us into action. And that faith is built by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Abram and Sarah did have a son in the end, and they named him Isaac. And many of you will know that Isaac means laughter. So they had this laughter when God said, you're going to have a family at 99 years old. But God had the last laugh. We will have our doubts. We will be, at times, disappointed because things don't happen the way we think they should happen. But let's not be held back by that. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, fixed on God and the plans that he has. I just want to finish by praying. And, yeah, I don't know where you're at. I don't know kind of what you've gone through, but I just want to pray again that I would keep my eyes focused on God. And I want to ask forgiveness, really, for for the times when I have been cynical, for the times when I've been apathetic. If that fits with you again, then just pray along as I pray. Yeah, Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the amazing stories that we read in your word of human lives, but the way that you've come and interacted with those human lives and that you've changed them and that you've made such a difference. Lord, I'm sorry for the times when I've doubted you. I'm sorry for the times when that doubt has held me back, when it's begun to to be unbelief because things haven't happened as I perceive they should happen. Lord, I'm sorry for the times I've been apathetic. I'm sorry for the times I've been cynical even. Lord, I thank you that you are greater than whatever situations we face. No matter how hopeless they may seem, Lord, we can still have faith in you. We can still believe in you because you are bigger. And Lord, I just want to come back to you again this afternoon and say, I want to believe. I want to believe in the things that you have for me and the things that you have for this church and the things that you have for this nation. Lord, we don't know how they're going to 
come into being. We don't know how they can possibly come into being. But we trust that you're an almighty God, that you are bigger than our situations, and that you can make them happen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being with us today. Amen.